Right, there we are. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're all well this morning and had a good weekend so far. Um, I am extremely privileged to be able to preach this morning. It's always wonderful to be able to preach in your own home church and to look out and to see so many familiar faces of people you've come to know and love, and particularly um, those people within the congregation who you have a very close relationship with, people in our home group, etc., that we love very deeply. It's a great pleasure always to be able to preach in your home church. Um, I also want to extend a, a welcome to, to all of the visitors here. I didn't see whose hand went up, but uh, you're very welcome here this morning, and it's wonderful to have you. Uh, there may even be someone who's visited a couple of times, and you might not even consider yourself to be a committed Christian or a regular churchgoer, and it might still be a little bit strange coming into a church like this, uh, where people worship the way they do, but I just hope that you'll feel comfortable enough amongst us this morning to uh, hear me patiently, and hopefully by the end of today you'll have a better uh, understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ than you did when you walked in here. And uh, it's my great prayer that you will meet the Jesus whom we say still encounters people today because he's alive. And we say that he does that primarily through the truth of his word, the Bible. And you know, this, this book, the Bible, is a book of truth. It is, as we Christians believe, the only book of revelation that we have in this world. And God has given it to us in order to give us light by which we may walk. It's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. As we tread this uh, sometimes confusing, lonely, and sometimes heartbreaking road that we call life. Um, the central message of the Bible is this, that God seeks and saves that which is lost. That's you and me. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We're going to meet another sinner this morning who encountered Jesus as we met last week. Tomo preached so wonderfully last week to us of a man named Nicodemus whom encountered Jesus. From the moment that Jesus stepped into the ministry at the age of 30, he began encountering people with such dramatic power that these people's lives were changed for the good or for the bad. Some people rejected him and suffered the consequences, as did the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem itself. But others received him and believed in him, and their lives were redeemingly changed for the better. Such was Nicodemus, and such was a woman whom we will meet today in John chapter 4. If you do have a Bible with you, I would like to ask you to go to John chapter 4 with me. And we're going to meet this morning... Though they have this in common, this encounter with Jesus, we're going to meet a woman who is entirely different to Nicodemus, whom we met last week. Unlike Nicodemus, who was a religious man, a ruling 
a member of the, the Jewish council, a Pharisee, in fact, the teacher of Israel, a man who was incredibly well-educated about the things of the Lord, a man who was, uh, on the outside, incredibly righteous. This morning, we're going to meet a woman who knows nothing about God. She's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. She's confused. She thinks she knows a few things, but really, she's ignorant, and she's rejected by God's people. And yet, we will see that Jesus encounters her with the same grace and love that he encountered Nicodemus. So let's read the first nine verses of John chapter 4 together. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he, Jesus, made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, about midday. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Shall we pray? Lord, we commit this, your eternal, everlasting, living word to you. And we pray that you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, would speak to each of us this morning from your word and do the work that only you can do. We commit this time to you, God, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> A little bit of background is necessary on this area called Samaria. Uh, who were the Samaritans? What was their relationship to the Jews? Uh, about 740 years before this event in the life of Jesus, the Assyrian Empire had conquered the nation of Israel. God had delivered Israel into the hand of their enemies because Israel had persistently turned their backs on Him as their God. Finally, God judged them and sent them into captivity. So the Assyrian Empire had conquered Israel and taken all of the people out of their homeland, the land that God had promised them, and dispersed them all throughout the kingdoms which he ruled as the king of Assyria. And what had happened was, in those days, when a king would conquer a nation... They would, they would do that on purpose. There was a, a reason why they would take the people captive and then scatter them, split them apart, fragment them across the empire, and then take a fragmented peoples from the other kingdoms that they had conquered and bring this mixed bag of unrelated people and settle them in the land they had just conquered. And that's exactly what the king of Assyria did to Israel. Took the people captive and then brought a whole lot of Gentile people from a whole lot of unrelated nations and settled them in the nation of Israel. Now the reason the kings used to do that was to break any sense of national heritage amongst the people that they conquered, so that 
when they dispersed this people abroad, they would inevitably intermarry with other nations, and the national spirit or heritage or pride of that nation that once existed would entirely dissipate so that that nation could not gather together with that sense of national pride in the future and then gather around that as a rallying point to then challenge this nation in the future again. National heritage and pride can be a powerful thing, and they would break it. Just as a point of history, if you look through the last 4,000 years of human history that we have documented, there is no nation on this planet that has ever survived the ravages of history except the Jews. 4,000 years, and you read what that nation has gone through. And they still have a stronger sense of national identity than any peoples on earth. One of the ways we know the Bible is true is through the witness of the miracle of the nation of Israel. Only this book can explain what has happened to the nation of the Jews. They are God's people. So when the Jews eventually did resettle in their land, they were allowed at some future point to come back. When they got back to their land, their promised land, they found in it this mixed multitude of Gentile peoples who had been living there for several generations up until that point, and they resented the presence of these Samaritans that they had to now live with in their land. They didn't see these Gentile Samaritans as being God's people. In fact, they saw them as squatters on their holy land overlooking the fact that God himself had thrown them out of the land for their unfaithfulness. And as an illustration of this great enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans, the hatred between these two groups of people, in John chapter 8, when the Jews were insulting Jesus, they said to him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? I mean, the worst insult that a Jew could think of in those days was to call someone a demon-possessed Samaritan. And this is the nation of people that this lady comes from. But the relationship is even more complex than that. Religiously, there was an interweaving of beliefs between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the reason for that was twofold. Firstly, when the Jews had finally resettled in their land, as you would expect, there would be young Jewish boys who noticed a very pretty Samaritan girl and they would end up getting married. Similarly, a young, handsome Samaritan boy would see a a pretty Jewish girl, and they would end up getting married. So there was intermarriage between the Jews and the Samaritans as the generations went by, between that resettling and now the time of Jesus. And not only that, but the book of 2 Kings also tells us that when the, the, uh, the king of Assyria had conquered the nation of Israel in the beginning and taken the people out and resettled all those Gentiles in the land, that because the Gentiles had not worshipped God according to the dictates of the Mosaic law, that God had sent lions among them to ravage the people because they weren't obeying the rituals of the nation of Israel. And so they had cried out to the king of Assyria, please send us one of the priests of this land to teach us how to worship. So the king of Assyria had sent one of the Levit- uh, Levitical priests back to 
the, the Gentile peoples in the land of Israel, and he had taught them some of the rituals of the, of the Jewish religion. And so now we find, by Jesus' time, when he steps into the land of Samaria, and he sits down by a well, that this people in Samaria, they have the what could be called the whispers and the shadows of the truth among them. They have a heritage of a kind of knowledge of the true God, a heritage by this stage of hundreds of years, which included some teaching about the true God, and yet despite this heritage, they were still found entirely ignorant of the life that comes through knowing God and His truth in all its fullness. And my friends, that describes many people in our world today. Especially in a a so-called Christian country like our own, where we grow up with a strong Christian heritage, people go to Christian schools, they go to Sunday school when they're a kid, etc. And yet, though they grow up with these whispers and shadows of the truth among them in their childhood, yet they are actually found bankrupt of a true and saving knowledge of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. And maybe that describes you here this morning. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home. Perhaps you went to a Christian school and there were prayers in assembly. Uh, Perhaps you even went to Sunday school uh, for a short period of your youth. And yet, could it be said of you that you've never actually had an encounter with Jesus Christ? Could it be said of you that though you have this heritage that you actually don't know the Lord. Well, it's just such a woman whom Jesus now meets at the well in Samaria. We must ask the question, why did Jesus stay alone that day and sit by that well? Why did Jesus choose that road, traveling north from Judea to Galilee, Why did he go through Samaria and stop at the well of Sychar that day at that time? I hope you don't have an accidentalist view of human history. I hope you have a providentialist view, particularly in the life of Jesus. Nothing was by chance or coincidental. Jesus was there that day because he was anointed with the Spirit of God without measure, the Bible says. He only did what he saw the Father do. Somehow the Bible gives us this indication that Jesus had an uninterrupted communication flow between himself and his Father when he was on the earth. That he was always obedient to what his Father was telling him to do. And let me tell you, God knew, in fact, God caused that woman to come to that well that day at that time because God wanted to save her. That's why Jesus was there that day. Because despite her sin, God loved her. And God sent His Son that day to go and encounter her, that she might be forgiven. Verse 10, Jesus uh, answered, so she asks Him, how come you're speaking to me? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of Him and He would have given you living water. Jesus says, if you knew 
the gift of God, and if you knew who it is who is speaking to you, then you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. There were two things that this woman didn't know. She did not know the gift of God. She, she didn't even know there was a gift of God, let alone how to receive it. And she did not know who Jesus was. This lady, as we will find as the story unfolds, she thought she had some answers, or at least that someone one day would bring her answers. But she knew neither the gift of God nor who Jesus was. I've already said to you that nations like our own, with a Christian heritage, uh, in nations like ours, there are many people who think that they know God, or they think that they know about religion, or about church, or about Jesus. Yes, I went to Sunday school as a child, I had chapel at school, I've been to church a few times, I know about religion, I know about Jesus, but you know what, it's, it's not for me. But they, don't know, they neither know the gift of God and they don't know who Jesus is. Do you know, do you know this morning that there is a gift of God? Do you know what that gift is? And do you know how to receive that gift? The Bible says that the free gift of God is eternal life. And how do we receive that gift? It is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus said to this woman, you know neither the gift of God nor who I am. And if you are willing this morning, I would ask you to search your heart. Is your knowledge of the true Jesus so bare that actually in truth it could be said of you that you know neither the gift of God and you don't actually know Jesus either. For if you knew the gift of God and if you knew this Jesus Christ, you would have asked. It would already have happened. Past tense. You would have asked and He would have given you living water to drink. Have you asked? Have you asked God for the gift of eternal life? Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord? Have you received the gift of God? Verse 11, the woman responds to him. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? I think she was irritated by Jesus. I mean, this man, he, she doesn't know him from a bar of soap. And he immediately says to her that she's ignorant. She doesn't know the gift of God. She doesn't know who he is, whoever he thinks he is. And by implication... He says to her that she has problems in her life that she doesn't know how to solve, and he's got the, the solution for her. And given this woman's past, I wouldn't be surprised if she actually thought that he was flirting with her. And so she pushes back a little bit. She gets a little cheeky with him. You're greater than our father Jacob. 
Verse 13, Jesus answers her. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is using water as an analogy. He is speaking metaphorically or figuratively. Water is something that every one of us needs every day. We need water to live, and we constantly have to go back and drink more water. It doesn't matter if you're thirsty this morning, you woke up, you had two big glasses of water, and you felt so satisfied after drinking that water. It doesn't matter how satisfied you feel when you've drunk water. Within a day, you are going to be thirsty again, and you have to go back again and drink again. It seems that Jesus is using water as an analogy of all of the things in life that we constantly have to go back and seek again and again and again to make us feel fulfilled. You need many things uh, for life. You need water to live, but you also need food. Uh, You need money. But you need more than those material things in life to live a life of fullness. You need love. Every one of us needs to be loved. You need a kind word. Every one of us needs encouragement. We need friends and friendship. More than that, we also need times of fun and enjoyment. We need times of rest and pleasure. But we also need a sense of purpose in life. Every one of us needs to feel that what we're giving ourselves to in life is a good thing, that the journey we're on is is one that is significant. But all of these things that we pursue in life to give us a sense of life and fullness of life, which we all want, all of these things we need to be seeking over and over and over again. We can never have enough of these things. We need them constantly. No matter how much encouragement you get, you're going to need to be encouraged again. No matter how much love you receive, you need love every day. You need love for the rest of your life. You need friends all the time. None of these things lasts. No matter how many friendships you have, no matter how many kind words, no matter how many fantastic sexual experiences, no matter how much money you make, no, no matter all these things we look to in life to give us a sense of exhilaration or fullness of life that we're really experiencing life, no matter what you look to, it will always leave you thirsting for more and dying on the inside. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, said Jesus. Would you be patient with me this morning if, if I were to ask you where you are seeking your sense of joy and fullness of life. Because if the well from which you are drawing the water of your life, the water of fulfillment and joy and peace and a sense of settled comfort and fullness of life, if the well you are trying to draw that out of is anything other than Jesus Christ Himself, you will always be left thirsting for more. 
And you know, I don't even have to convince you of that. You know that's true. Before I came to the, the Lord, no matter how big the party was, no matter how wild the night was, and all that came along with that kind of life, no matter how great the story was the next morning, no matter what place I traveled to or experience I could suck out of the marrow of life, it never seemed to satisfy me. I always had to go back again for more and a bigger story and a, and a bigger experience. And maybe, that, but maybe if I go to that place, it'll be better. And I'll finally find that thing that settles me. It's not to be. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave of sin. And sin, my friends, is a slave master who is never satisfied. People look to many things in this life to give them a sense of joy and peace, a sense of fullness of life. People look to money and the endless pursuit of more and more money. Um, it's a sad thing to see a man neglecting his family for the sake of a business, just one more year, one more year, one more year, I'm working hard, I'm doing this for my family, seeking that sense of fullness in money. Listen to me, it'll leave you empty. I'm not saying money's not important, we all need money. You need to draw your strength from Jesus Christ in life and He will help you tread a wise path concerning money, concerning sex, concerning everything that we look to in life to give us pleasure. He can show you how to use those things in a godly way. People look to sexual pleasure. They look to friendship and popularity. If I could just be in with that crowd, if I could just be friends with that person, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be in with the in-group. Then I'll be counted as popular. Then my insecurities will be covered over. People look to religion coming to church, all sorts of rituals in all sorts of religions, including Christianity. People try to find a sense of meaning in just the ritualistic repetition of certain things as if it's going to clear their conscience. It won't work, my friends. People look to travel like there's a magic talisman on some country, on some shore somewhere, on some backpacking trip, on some cycle tour, on some this, on some that, that will finally give them that sense of fullness of life. But listen to me, all manner of hedonistic pleasure will only leave you thirsty and unsatisfied. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. That's the bottom line. For so many people, this life is simply chasing after the wind. They're never finally satisfied. They never once and for all find peace. Always returning for more. In this life, everything will eventually fail you. Everything. And death will have the final word. And you know all death will do is it will bring you before a holy and righteous God for the judgment of your sins. Without God, life is empty. And Jesus is using water as a metaphor to speak of these great truths of life to this woman. Verse 15, the woman responds to him. <clears throat> the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor 
come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. You know, this woman began to engage with Jesus now on his level of the conversation. Jesus has skillfully, masterly managed to draw her into a conversation about spiritual things. She says to him, give me this water, but I want you to notice something. As soon as she begins to engage with Jesus on the subject of this gift of God, as soon as she begins to engage with him, Jesus confronts her immediately with her sinfulness. Notice that. Oh, Jesus got serious with this woman quickly. This was no game for Jesus. This was no afternoon spent in social jousting, passing of time while his disciples are getting food. He's not there to play games with her. He's not flirting with her. Enough of this, he says, let's get to the point. Go and get your husband. This woman, and Jesus knew it, she was divorced five times and now living with a man who was not her husband. She's living with her boyfriend. Go and get your husband, he says to her. He gets straight to the point of her particular sinfulness. Why? So that they can begin being honest with each other. So that she can be forgiven of her sin so that she can receive the gift of God. Jesus wasn't passing time or playing games with this woman. And please understand, I'm not playing games with you this morning. This is not just another Sunday, another ritualistic church service. Please listen to me. If you are to receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, that is not going to happen until your sin gets dealt with. Until you are forgiven. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not the righteous. And in order to do that, we have to get to the point. We have to talk about sin. We have to talk about our holy God who will not stand for sin. He by no means clears the, the guilty, the Bible says. We have to talk about that. We have to talk about judgment. We have to talk about heaven and the promise of heaven and the incredible eternal life that is offered to us. And we have to talk about hell, everlasting punishment and damnation, the Bible calls it. We have to talk about these things. We have to get to the point. This woman had been divorced five times and she was busy sleeping with a man who wasn't her husband. Go and get your husband, he says to her. Now what would God, Jesus, what would he have said to you that afternoon? I've often thought about that. What, what would Jesus have said to me if he'd encountered me at the well that day? Are you, like this woman, a fornicator? Are you having sex outside of marriage, that is? Maybe for you, it's a pornographic issue that Jesus confronts you about this morning. Maybe it's something more subtle. Maybe it's a pride issue. Maybe it's a, 
a lovelessness. That you never do anything for anybody else. You don't love your neighbor as you, as you love yourself. And you feel the conviction of that this morning. Maybe Jesus would have confronted you about your foul mouth and your constant blasphemy of His name and the name of His Father. Maybe it's how you've treated your parents, the disrespect that you've shown them. Maybe it's dishonesty at work. Maybe you've been stealing. Each of us have been given a God-given conscience. And each of us know the areas where, where we feel the deepest pangs, the sharpest cuts of the knife of God in our conscience. That's where Jesus would have taken you that day. Why? Because He knows everything about you. The Bible says that everything about us is displayed openly before the eyes in front of whom we will all have to give an account. This woman had been married five times. She's living with her husband. He says, go and get your, go and get your husband. And all of a sudden, she feels exposed. You know, this has been okay. This has been fun so far, speaking to the stranger, a little bit of social jousting here at the well. That was okay, but this is getting awfully serious now. How does this man know these things about me? My deepest shame. You know, there's a certain curiosity that does accompany people when they first come to church or they first sort of investigating the, the Christian faith. There's a looseness about that initial investigation. But what can happen is you end up in a church like this this morning and someone is preaching the gospel and all of a sudden you feel a tremendous and deep guilt for the things you've done in your life. And your sins are brought before you with all the power of heaven and of the Holy Spirit and you feel deeply convicted and you feel like, I didn't come here for this. I wasn't planning on this. And that's exactly how this woman felt. Who is this man? She realizes that this man is not flirting with her. He's not passing time. This this man has been speaking to her about something spiritual. And verse 19, because she feels so exposed, she tries to change the subject and divert the conversation. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will not worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She perceives that Jesus is a prophet. I think it scared the daylights out of her. And then she, be, she begins to reveal, in changing the subject, her total ignorance of the things of God. She says, our fathers say we must worship on this mountain. You Jews say we must worship on that mountain. I don't know. I don't know how to please God. I don't know anything about who this God is and what He wants from me. She reveals her total ignorance. Jesus responds to her. He says, you're not going to worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. There's a day coming, He says, where you will worship in spirit and truth. You worship what you, know, what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Wish I could spend more time on that verse. But the hour is coming and now is when you will worship in spirit and in truth, Jesus says. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, who, who is called Christ? 
who is called Christ. This is Jesus he's speaking to. So I know Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In the depth of this sinful woman's heart, she was looking forward to the coming of the one that they said would answer all of her questions. See, actually, when Jesus had stripped away the mask that she had, when he'd stripped away all of her, uh, all of the coverings over of her sinful life, when he'd stripped away her diversions of the conversation, when all of that was stripped away and they could be honest with each other, it was actually revealed that this woman had a deep longing for God. She longed for God to know her. She, lo- she longed to meet the Christ. She longed to be washed clean and made new. She was thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you thirsty for the gift of God? Are you thirsty for righteousness? Are you thirsty to know God? Because blessed are you if you thirst, because you shall be filled. Because God is a loving God and He delights to fill those who thirst for Him. Despite this woman's wretched filthiness in sin, despite the total mess that she had made of her life, and despite the fact that she was cast out by the people of God, hated by the Jews, despite of all of that, Jesus came to her. Jesus still loved her. And he sought her out to reveal her. And as you read through the story in your own time, you will find that she goes back to her village and she tells them, come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And the whole village comes and the whole village gets saved because of the testimony of this woman. This woman who everyone hated and judged and cast out, God used her to save an entire village. Hallelujah. That's the grace of our God. He can use a sinner like me. He can use a sinner like you. Hallelujah. And she learned that day. She woke up that morning. She didn't know the gift of God. She didn't know who Jesus was. But by the time she'd encountered Jesus Christ at the well that day, she learned that the gift of God is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And she learned along with her whole village that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. If you are willing this morning, my friend, to turn away from your sins, and if you are willing to call on the Lord Jesus Christ, He stands before you this morning as He stood before that woman, and He says, I who speak to you am He. I am the one you're looking for. Will you come to Him this morning? Will you drink of the water that He offers you? And will you receive the gift of God? Come to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. My Heavenly Father, I want to thank You so much for Your gift. The gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgiveness of sins, no matter what we've done, we look to Him and we are forgiven. Oh God, what a gift. The promise of heaven, Lord. 
It makes our hearts sore, oh God. Thank you for your gift, my God. And thank you for Jesus, the Savior of the world, for sending him. Thank you for this living water that we can drink from. Lord, fill each of us again with that fountain of water, that Holy Spirit that you let well up within each of us. Lord, fill us again with your Spirit. And I pray that you would open the eyes and hearts of those in this room who have never drunk of that water before, that today you might give them repentance and faith so that they might live in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Graham.